Welcome to the Relevance Rapport, where we meet relevant global industry leaders who are driving impact and shaping the future. Today, we sit with Kate Schlesinger. She's the publishing director of Vanity Fair and Tatler at Condé Nast Britain. She's held this role since 2017, and with her leadership, she leads both brands to commercial success through fulfilling the sales, marketing, PR, and all media strategies across all platforms in harmony with the editorial department. She's a true tastemaker and what a force. We're so glad to have her, Kate Schlesinger. So hi, Kate, how are you? Very nice to meet you uh, on this lovely Zoom and uh, see you in, in London. How are you? Very well, thanks, Suzanne. It's lovely to meet you too. Isn't Zoom wonderful? We can have these, these long distance calls and I feel like you're just next to me in the same room. Almost. It's amazing. Uh, there are so many negative things that have come out of this pandemic, but this is definitely one of the best things. I think that we get to connect this way and really feel very close to people who are far away. And, um, you know, your, your reputation precedes itself. Uh, obviously, you're very, very successful uh, running um, the Condé Nast Britain version of uh, Vanity Fair uh, as the publishing director and also Tatler and what an incredible publication. Yeah. So it's, it's really great to have you here. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. That, that sounds like a very big drum roll um, for, for something I just sort of take as second, second nature, really. It's been part of my life for so long, uh, working at Condé Nast, um, Condé Nast Britain, as it's now known, for, goodness, a quarter of a century. I cannot believe it. But I think what is very key to my long or my longevity at Condé Nast Britain is really just chopping and changing every so often and um, keeping it fresh by working on new titles. And yes, currently I am running Vanity Fair UK and Tatler, which are two of the very sort of very finely crafted jewels in our crown. And I'm loving, loving working on these titles. It's, it's a real insight. How do you keep it fresh, Kate? Um, I think I really, I just, I plunge headfirst into these, into these, roles and you know I've been I started off at Vogue uh, and it's funny actually how the roles map my life or have mapped my life and my life and times you can chart them according to where I've worked at Condé Nast Britain and when I was uh, sort of single needed to have a bit of um, you know fashion and beauty advice there I was on Vogue and and it was all there you just absorb it in 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 the ether of working at a title like British Vogue, it's, it's a phenomenal kind of uh, learning process. Uh, and, you know, it felt incredibly fresh, incredibly exciting uh, for me back in the 90s, it was when I was working at Vogue, 90s and early 2000s. And then um, not to kind of bring my personal life kicking and screaming into this conversation, but it is oh, it's good. It's in inextricably linked. I mean, we are who we are because of what we do and, and who we're with, right? Absolutely. Um, and um, so then I, I, I went to Condé Nast Traveller, running Condé Nast Traveller at a time when I needed to uh, arrange a honeymoon. Um, oh. <laughs> so it was perfect. Uh, and uh, yeah, I did arrange a honeymoon. God, it, it seems amazing now actually to think that I took so many trips in one year. Um, in my first year of Condé Nast Traveller, which also mapped the first year I was with the chap who would then turn out to be my husband. Oh. We probably went 
to, um, I don't know, 30, 40 countries together. I mean, little weekends here. And I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And I look back now and I think I did not realise how good I had it. You know, here we are. Uh, I don't know for, for your listeners um, when they'll be listening to this, but as I speak to you, I'm just coming to the end of lockdown in London and I'm just wishing I could, I could do the things that I did back, uh, back in the day at Condé Nast Traveller. So that, was, that felt very fresh, very new, seeing all these countries, visiting places I never even thought that I would get to um, in my lifetime, let alone in, in the space of one year. And then... Uh, again, when I started having children and we decided that we needed a house uh, to house them all, um, well, I just moved to house and garden, didn't I? So it was fantastic. So perfect. How did you whip all of this up? This is incredible. I, this... I, I, I think I must have been manifesting it at some yeah. point. You, know, you just manifest what you what you want in life and sometimes it does come along. But it, it was pretty perfect. And now here I am running Tatler and Vanity Fair. My girls, I've got three daughters. They're a little bit more grown up. They like parties. They're mm. interested in red carpet. They love movies, entertainment. So it's absolutely brilliant. They, they, they are, you know, very, very um, proud, I think, of the fact that I work where I do. And, and none prouder than my one of my twin daughters who when we ran the Billie Eilish cover on Vanity Fair a couple of months ago, she mm. grabbed it. She was like, mommy, mommy, Billie Eilish. Oh my goodness, all my friends are gonna be so jealous. You know, because obviously she did the, the interview and the shoot, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. But anyway, it, it's things like that that keep it fresh and keep it relevant and it's relevant to my life. And I hope it's relevant to my family's life. And I just take such pleasure in, in seeing the delight that it brings both to my, my children and my husband, but also, you know, to me, I just, I never get bored of what I do ever. Well, that's how you keep it fresh because you're living this in reality in a way, right? All, all of these journeys through these various publications, you've been, you know, absolutely going through those phases in your life, actually doing the traveling, getting married and um, having the family and, you know, building a house, building a true home. So it makes sense. And, yes. and you're, you're in a great position to keep it fresh. So that's incredible that you're, you're living very much uh, a very authentic life and being able to show the stories through the publications, right. And, and getting to share those. And I can understand, I have three children myself and everybody wants to be the cool mummy. And you definitely have that role uh, in your position, I'm sure, especially with Billie Eilish and all the great names that are associated with the publications, you know, and the great cover shoots. I know you've got a lot of Royal buzz as well, right. Uh, with Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair is um, very much, you know, reporting on, everything Megan and Harry. And uh, so you've got a lot there too, but that's very um, of the moment. Do you have any uh, new gossip to share on that front? If I did, I wouldn't be able to share it. I don't think um, I'd love to say I've got the latest and I'd love to say I, I have the inside scoop, which um, I think is, is something that very, very few people have on the Royals. And uh, it's certainly not me, but what I love with Tatler in particular is that we do, um, you know, our, our circle is very connected and we have amazing access and, 
you know, the royals are the royals read Tatler, they devour Tatler. It's 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 definitely something that I'm sure sits on the Queen's coffee table. Um, but I think part of that access is is trust. And so we don't, you know, we're not in the business of of dishing the dirt, we're not in the business of passing comment. I certainly wouldn't want to wade into the latest debacle. Um, and <laughs> all I can say is I'm very glad that Prince Philip is safely out of hospital back in mm. Windsor Castle and that he's back with his family and that that, you know, that can be the focus of, of the Queen's attention going forward. It must be very difficult being parted from him for a month. Um, but I think, you know, Royals is part, it's the part of the DNA of what Tatler does. Um, Less so Vanity Fair, but I think, again, you know, this, this phenomenon has arisen of royal celebrities, as we call them, you know, the, the, they're not, not celebrities, they're royal celebrities, And, you know, that is a, a sort of phenomenon that, that has kind of just grown and grown, especially since Meghan's entry into the royal family, you know, you've mm. got that melding of celebrity with royalty, and it's a very intoxicating mix so of course Vanity Fair wants a part of it wants to be all over it and again we we you know Vanity Fair's take on royalty is slightly different than Tatler's and sometimes I I'm like god am I working on Vanity Fair or Tatler <laughs> which one am I doing but um yeah I, I who isn't interested in the ongoing sagas and and unfolding stories is it's it's absolutely fascinating and I think on on a wider level, you know, there, there's a huge amount at stake, certainly for the UK, you know, how royalty takes itself forward into its next iteration. How will the royal family operate when Prince Charles becomes king, when Prince William becomes king? You know, it's going to be a very different place. And I, and I think they're making an effort uh, to, to, to kind of put the spotlight on that and, and uh, really kind of shape themselves for the future. Right. Get away from all the gossip and, and just really focus on what matters. I think I think that's the point. Right. And when it comes to gossip, we know that Hollywood's fair game. So uh, you just finished your Hollywood issue, right, for, for Vanity Fair? Yes. And, and have... they, yeah, so sorry. Yeah, yeah they had the, the, the Oscars going virtual this year. So how was that different? So, well, the Oscars, um, as you know, it's, I think it's, it's at the 25th of April they happen. Uh, so they will be, they're not going virtual in the strictest sense of the word because they're actually happening in the theatres in LA, but obviously, you know, vastly reduced um, audience, if any audience. Uh, and, of, and of course, Vanity Fair would be all over those events. And we, we usually have an amazing Oscars party um, which clearly cannot happen right now. Um, but the Oscars issue is really the iconic issue of Vanity Fair. It's it's such a fun one to, to be associated with, to be part of. There's always a throwout gatefold cover. Um, and this year we had it styled by Katie Grand, who um, formerly of Love fame, she was the editor of Love. Hmm. And I have to say, it is the most fantastic cover, just as I have it here, Exhibit A. Um, it's just the most wonderful. So this is, Vanity Fair UK looks exactly the same as Vanity Fair US, except that we put different ads in it. But this, this throw out cover is just, so my kids obviously want to put this on their wall. Gorgeous. Um, it is fantastic. Um, and it's, 
you know, it's it's a it's a big deal for Vanity Fair because it attracts a lot of advertisers to the issue because of, obviously everyone wants to read that issue. But uh, the follow up to the Oscars is usually our Vanity Fair portrait studio that we always have at our party. But clearly, as we can't have the party. Uh, it's anyone's guess exactly what form that portrait studio will take this year, but I'm sure that our wonderful editor, Radhika Jones, will have something cooked up. But I have to say that the Hollywood issue this year, I mean, showstopper, showstopper, and current sales are looking really strong. Incredible. So let's talk trends. What are some trends that you're seeing that you think uh, we should be looking out for this year? Um, well, I think a lot of them, it's impossible to separate the trends from the ongoing situation that we're in, the pandemic. And, you know, on a macro level, we're seeing this sort of renewed emphasis on family, a renewed emphasis on, you know, human beings. We are human beings, we're not human having. And family and being are kind of interlinked. And I think everyone uh, is, is really enjoying spending time with family and it's you know it's a gift that we we've those of us who are fortunate enough to have family have seized um yeah. obviously there are some constraints with with not being able to see different generations in your family but your close family unit you you, you know you're spending more time with than ever before so I think that's a big trend and I think um obviously home anything to do with the home is big. I mean, we know it's well documented. Everyone has to learn how to make sourdough. I don't know whether you've had that kind of stateside, but. <laughs> yes, we did. I've got a sourdough starter <laughs> <laughs> that I took because we've moved house recently. So I took, I froze my sourdough starter. That's how sad I am. I froze my sourdough starter <laughs> and it's in my freezer waiting to come out when we get to our new house. And uh, so, you know, there's a, but loads of trends are associated with being at home, being with the family. So, you know, we'll be at cooking trends, decorating trends. Um, a lot of the fashion companies are launching into home interest and you're seeing, you know, more than ever before, they're placing an emphasis on the home interest side of things. Mm-hmm. Then associated with that, you've got wellness trends. And because we are about, as I said earlier, you know, we, we are supposed to be getting back to being human beings and, you know, we're just celebrating the fact that we're alive and we're touch wood well and safe. So, you know, celebrating that, that fact of our, of our wellness I think is again a big trend and uh, you know the two titles that I work on view wellness through a very rarefied prism uh, and <laughs> on Tatler on Tatler you're seeing all sorts of sort of you know shamans and and uh, wellness programs and vitamin programs but you're also seeing an awful lot of cosmetic surgery going on uh, which isn't necessarily wellness, but it can help your mental health. If you look at yourself too long in a Zoom call, as I do, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely feeling there are, there are features I, I need to change big time. Um, oh, I think we all feel like that when we look at ourselves through Zoom and, and the lighting's never right and it's too close. And I don't know, it's one of the things I won't miss when we come out of lockdown. I just don't need to look at myself that much. No, it's too it. much. I absolutely hate it. And I think another another very important and linked trend is is you know people are being kinder and they're being more compassionate and it's it's being passed down the generations you know the, 
and, and amplified with each generation. And my children are definitely a lot more compassionate to each other and conscious of you know, the impact that they can have on one another, both by things that they say as well as things that they do. Uh, they're also kinder to the planet. They remind me, incessantly remind me to switch off my lights, turn off my taps. Um, That's great. So yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot more kindness. I, I like to think that that, that is a, a positive byproduct of the pandemic. Yes, we're seeing it here too. I think everyone's doing a big reset and taking stock and figuring yeah. out what is important and it is family and it is our health. And it is taking care of each other. And so I, I can't agree more with, with what you're saying because this has helped us uh, rethink our priorities. And while we still need to feel great about ourselves, like we look good and we like style and we're always going to be looking for what's new and next, we can't lose sight of what our core values are. And, and this has been a really nice opportunity, I think, for people who are forming what's new and next, such as yourself, you know, you're a true tastemaker to really incorporate and infuse um, a little bit more of the heart and soul of what matters into style, into trends. Um, you know, as you say, sustainability, taking mm -hmm. care of the planet. I mean, sustainable fashion is, is huge right now. Um, sustainable home goods, sustainable buildings, um, you know, all, uh, sustainable wellness retreats, yeah. um, all of these things and beauty products. So you're really in a great position to, you know, help meld all of these things in a, in a really beautiful way. And I love that you're, you're incorporating everything that's come out of this really dark time in a way and make, and really shining a light on it. You're really helping to show, you know, not everything that came out of this was negative. We really are closer. We really do have a renewed sense of what matters. And I think that there's an exciting reemergence coming, coming about now. So whenever mm -hmm. I do uh, have these webcast calls with, with some of um, my, my other friends and colleagues and, and mentors, they're all saying the same thing. There's an overall sense of wow, something exciting is going to come out of this. There's going to be a revival. And um, I hope that all the creatives and all the, the young minds help shape new possibilities instead of doing things the same old way. You know, it's, it's, it's really kind of, kind of great. I agree. I agree. I think um, it is great. And I've always, you know, I perhaps in a, in a less than, um, fashionable way but it, obviously I was very prescient about it but I've always championed you know kindness and compassion it's you know it's it's something that I really really believe in and I feel that you can never really truly succeed in business unless you do operate with kindness and compassion for your fellow beings so I'm really glad to see that it's it's coming uh, you know coming good and that it's become something that that other people value so not just me with my quaint old-fashioned ways but it, it, it is something that is actually going to help you help the planet help your fellow humankind and you know ultimately it's what makes the world go round. absolutely can you share a little bit about your story and how you took a risk and and really landed um at vogue in the first place and tell us a little bit more about your journey god yes certainly um 
So I think it's hot-wired into my DNA not to take risks. Risks. Um, ever since I was, you know, very young, I was always uh, quite academic. I worked very hard. I achieved good grades at school. You know, like so many other people, I I, I did what was expected of me, and I achieved, and I, you know, overachieved, and. Uh, it was all through not taking risks because I made sure that I didn't take risks. Anyhow, um, I went through school and university, came out the other end, got a job in an ad agency, a big um, global advertising agency, part of the WPP group, actually. And um, one of my first uh, roles there was based in New York. And I spent three or four years in, in Manhattan, which were amazing amazingly formative years for me and um but for one reason or another I had to come back to to London not least of which because the visa the dreaded visa issue but um came back to London and just thought you know what I I just don't know whether I can hack doing advertising for Kellogg's cornflakes and I shouldn't mention brand name should I cornflakes (laughs) so mouthwash uh um like mints uh you know candy all of these things I thought I just don't know whether I can I can stand doing this for the rest of my professional life I've got to kind of make a change mm-hmm. and I um so, I don't know I, I I oh no I do know I came back I worked for about six months in a fashion PR company mm. about six months so I, I landed from New York went straight into this fashion PR company that I'd lined up because I didn't want to take any risks. Then I uh, saw what it was like in the fashion industry and what it was like in the magazine industry because I was looking over the parapet of the PR Mm. uh, fence. And I just thought, oh, I quite like this. Um, And I decided that I would go on one of my lunch breaks uh, to Vogue House and just see if I could have... five minutes with the then publishing director of Vogue, who was a charming chap called Stephen Quinn, an Irishman, very, very gregarious, lovely Irishman, always wore red socks. Hmm. And uh, and so I did that. I went to Vogue House, sat in the lobby and went, uh, you know, got a meeting. I don't know how. I mean, really, I don't know how. And um, at the end of the meeting, which lasted about half an hour, I was hired and Incredible. It was extraordinary because it wasn't an outcome I had anticipated or, or even dared to hope for, but it felt so right. And I then went back to the PR company and said, oh, you know what, I've got this job. I'm going to be leaving in four weeks' time. And um, their response wasn't the best. It wasn't, you know, they weren't sort of happy for me in the way that you would expect PRs to be. Hmm. <laughs> but uh, they, they said, you know, okay, fine. And in four weeks, four weeks after that, I, I went, I started at Vogue and the rest really just came as the opportunities, you know, came across my path. I took them, I seized them. But that risk, that going to sit in the lobby at Vogue House, not knowing exactly whether I'd be slung out uh, uh, or whether I'd be allowed in to the inner sanctum. Uh, and I was allowed in and it was just it was a brilliant brilliant thing but my goodness my life would have been very different if I hadn't taken that risk and for that reason I think I would always advocate you know if there's a risk that really kind of sends the chills up your spine take it take it take it because up to that point I'd done everything by the book you know I had never really taken 
big risks. And um, my life definitely took that fork in the road and things went a different way. How did you get the meeting? I'm curious. So you went into the lobby and you just sort of asked? Yeah. Okay. So, well, in, uh, in Times Square, as it then was, I know that, that uh, Condé Nast in Times Square, notoriously difficult to get into. And in fact, all American companies, you have to have your pass and you have to have this. And you have yes. To, you know, show your DNA and your hair and whatever. <laughs> it's so difficult to get into past the doorman of, of an American corporation. Um, at Vogue House at the time, there was a charming um, doorman called... Uh, Peter, uh, sadly no longer with us, but Peter, I, I just sort of went up and said, look, I, I don't know whether I could possibly just ask for five minutes of Stephen Quinn's time, five minutes, that's all it'll take. And he was absolutely, I mean, in those days, you know, you could just, you didn't have to have a security pass or anyone march you up the stairs to see the, the publishing director of Vogue. You just, you, you, if you smiled, if you said the right things, you, you might have a chance and, and that's what I did and it was great. But, you know, again, having spent a, a few um, a few weeks in the name of business at, at uh, Times Square, you know, going, visiting the Times Square offices when Condé Nast was based in Times Square and then in World Trade Center, it's very different. Oh my goodness, it, it freaks me out trying to get in those buildings. <laughs> it's just like so scary. Um, and then heaven forbid you should get in the uh, in the elevator with with you know one of the great and good at Condé Nast in the U.S. Yeah, it's a very scary thing. <laughs> yes. Well, we've all watched The Devil Wears Prada and all those movies that paint a certain oh, yeah. picture. <laughs> that that's almost required viewing when you work at Vogue. Wherever you work, wherever you are in the world, you have to watch The Devil Wears Prada if you work at one of the Vogues. Oh, incredible. Well, that's an amazing story. It really must have just been meant to be. Yeah. Because there really is no explanation for it. You just walked in and got hired. It's it's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it, it makes me wonder what drives you today, because you really have set your sights on things, gone after them, made it happen, you know, continuously uh, forging forward. So, what what is it now that drives you and excites you? Um, well, I think I, I will never lose that that urge to make things happen. I love getting things to you know giving them that spark and making them happen. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, with a huge team, or well, not a huge team anymore, but a, a big team behind me. Um, you know, it's 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 fantastic when you've got the enthusiasm of a team, some great ideas, and the drive to make them happen. And you treat your team in a in a way that actually infuses them and, and makes them feel motivated and part of the story. And you, you know, I, I try, I always catch myself if I ever talk about I, 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 I did this, I did that. I don't like it, it kind of doesn't sit well with me to say I did this, I did that. It's it's the team. It's you know, I have a fantastic team and yes. they work really hard and they deserve all the kudos and accolades. That, that I get because you know I'm just the, I'm just the front guy I'm just the spokesperson but I think it's it's really I just have this burning ambition to see things done well and to to make the best of every opportunity that's given to me and always to again you know sorry for sounding Pollyanna-ish but always to try and see the bright side there are always silver linings to any situation and um, you know I always try to try to 
extrapolate those and use them and use them to the good. Well, that's amazing. And you must be dealing with a lot of different teams because you had up PR and marketing and advertising and sales and media strategies and work alongside the editorial team for developing the editorial content. So, I mean, how many different teams are you dealing with at any given time? That, that's so many groups. I mean, being that I'm in marketing PR and, and also I, I understand your world. I know how different all those various uh, buckets are because uh, they think differently. They have different goals. You know, one's trying to drive revenue. The other one's trying to really harness influence. I mean, you've got a lot of tools that you're using to, to really drive the publication forward in, in this case for both Vanity Fair and Tatler. So how do you do it all? I mean, there are just so many teams, right, that yeah. you must be working with. I mean, I feel a little bit like a conductor of an orchestra. You know, you're, you're, you're permanently sort of looking to your woodwind section and your strings and, you know, <laughs> and you know, you're, you're trying to kind of make them all work in harmony. I think that, you know, it'd be wrong to, to give the impression that I am, you know, the overarching boss of all these people because I would, I would, I would hate to give that impression when, when it really is more like it's a dotted line from a lot of the disciplines to me and I'm directly running a, a team that comprises sales, sponsorships, partnerships, uh, copywriting, art direction. And then I have this, this sort of the partnership or the, the relationship that I have with the editor and the editorial team on each title uh, is, is quite, um, you know, it can be quite a delicate one because obviously commercial pull isn't always matched by what the editorial vision is and sure. uh, so you know you have, you have to have some some conversations uh, along the way which you know, can be quite tricky sometimes um and you will know as a pr you know that your clients want coverage they want they want to they want to be cited in the media they want to have their story told and all the more so if they're advertising mm. you know they feel it's it's it is a, a, an entitlement, it's a sense of entitlement if they are spending money on advertising that they should be covered um, in the vehicles that they're using. And so those kind of conversations, we pride ourselves at Condé Nast on always allowing the editorial teams to have their um, autonomy and to, mm. you know, they are totally integral to the, to the process of, of producing these wonderful brands. So you have to allow that autonomy to happen. Um, and I never, I, I can't actually think of any situation where I've ever kind of steamrolled uh, what an editor really, really felt had to happen in favor of a commercial consideration. Um, but there, there are a few sparks that fly, you know. Oh, of course. And to manage, and you just have to have a rhinoceros hide <laughs> to be very. You know, so so through all my kindness and empathy, I do have a pretty tough, gritty interior, and I, you know, nothing is going to really get me riled up to the point that I lose my um, my cool. That's so important. Well, I feel like the world has changed around us. No matter how much you want to give the editorial team, you know, its autonomy, and you know. I went to journalism school where there was the division of church and state and it was very pure, right? It was, it was never 
to influence the other. One side was never to influence the other. And in the middle of the pandemic, uh, Relevance became a 360 suite. It really did become a full service shop. And I had to do some soul searching on that for a moment because I thought, oh, geez, there goes my journalistic integrity that I really had at my core. The thing is, because the world has blurred those lines so much and the clients at the end of the day, just look at it as please disseminate the content Mm -hmm. in as many ways as you can. We were on the, we were basically in danger of, well, we have a choice. Either I really dig my heels in and stay pure PR and risk becoming a dinosaur or I really find a way to try to keep everything uh, obviously as integrous as, as, as possible, but, um, you know, have separate divisions within the company and really keep the editorial pure. It is earned, Mm -hmm. but then we also do offer paid, but we would never go to a publication and say, well, we're advertising. So please do editorial as well. I mean, it's very much kept separate, but we've also got all these new tools now, such as uh, you know, branded content, native advertising, uh, you know, social media, the content isn't even seen if you're not also advertising to a lot of people. So it almost in a way forced our hands to say, look, we've got to look at it as look, here's the brand and everything radiates from there. And we better know how to play in all parts of the field or, you know, it's the, the, the world isn't going to wait for us. I kind of get on board. That's so smart because you can't actually, I mean, that's where it gets back to my analogy of being like a conductor of the orchestra. You, you can't see any one of these elements in isolation. And if you do offer this 360 service to your clients, you're going to be far better off because you can actually see where one might drip and seep over into the other. You know, one discipline drips into the other, seeps into the other and, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to dredge up an example. But um, for instance, um, affiliate marketing is is becoming quite a thing at the moment. It's 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 the growth is exponential. Certainly, mm. at Condé Nast and you know Condé Nast worldwide. So, affiliate marketing, just to clarify, that is obviously where you've got a link embedded in editorial that then clicks through to the web. I mean, you know about it. I'm just yes. Well, you're saying it for the for the listeners, but it clicks through to um, the the website of of the the um, company that's been mentioned, and then we, as the original host, earn commission for anything that's sold as a result of that click through, mm. and that is you know that's a real sort of hybrid of editorial, bona fide editorial that has mentioned something's great. But then it results in uh, a reward, a commission to the brand that mentions it. And again, I don't know what the legislation is in the States, but here in the UK, we have to declare where we receive um, affiliate commission. We have to be very transparent. You know, there's a lot of legislation around it. But it's, it's a perfect example of this sort of seepage from one to the other. And, you know, if you as a PR know that your client is going to get some great editorial, my goodness, why wouldn't you not leverage that and, and 
take it the extra step, bring the potential buyers or the potential purchasers to the client's front door, aka their website, right? And, and get them to, you know, buy, basically. Right, because the, at then the end, is- yes, because at the end of all of it, the goal really is to drive sales for the yeah. client. I mean, whoever it is, that's what they want. Whether they want to say that that's what we're actually charged with or not, it's the truth. Every strategic plan I write, I can write all the goals and objectives I want. At the end of the day, it's to drive revenue, bottom yeah. line. So, you know, who are we kidding? In a way, it's it's time to just sort of be honest with ourselves and say, this is a great time for evolution strategically and exciting new tools in the toolkit that we never had before, such as video. I mean, I can't even tell you how many different ways clients are leveraging video to to really tell their stories um, and also making sure that they're taking advantage of the publisher's video opportunities, which is a great way to drive revenue for the publications, right? So, um, uh, you know, we were asked recently for an RFP to, it was for a tourism board, I won't mention which, which country, uh, but we were asked, you know, in addition to PR and editorial, could we get really, really high level sponsored content videos secured? And I thought this is so interesting because they're actually not asking me to talk about any of the ever, other advertising mm-hmm. opportunities, but just that, just video in the right places. And I thought, well, that's, that's very telling mm-hmm. how vital they see video um, as being in terms of really telling their story and they don't care if it's earned or paid. They just want to make sure that it it's in the right place. And so it's all getting muddled together. I think it's exciting. And, you know, I think that video and affiliate marketing are absolutely, we're seeing it here, absolutely driving the right strategic eyeballs to, uh, to, to actually purchase and transact. And uh, we're also seeing hyper hyper targeted I don't know if you're seeing this hyper-targeted um, audience uh, segmentation in terms of advertising, you know, really showing very t- targeted uh, advertising to the high net worth. Yeah. Let's say let, I only want to be seen by people that make above this income threshold. Um, and of course it could be targeted in any se- sector that you wanted, but we're definitely seeing that where, especially for luxury goods, they only want to be seen by certain people um, and they can hone in now with, uh, you know, the demographic, psychographic, where they live, what their spending habits are, and uh, we can be very targeted. So I think that is just going to also keep going, don't you? Definitely. We have a, it, it, that actually just reminds me, we have on Tapla a fantastic product that really is a response to, I mean, what you're talking about is a kind of side effect of everything becoming very local, which is Mm. partly driven by the pandemic and partly driven by, you know, just the world we live in. But, um, you know, we've gone almost from a huge kind of globalization to, okay, we're kind of targeting very local, very specific, very laser tight uh, target audience. And we on Tatler, our response to that has been to launch the Tatler address book, which is, Mm. you know, a commercial platform that basically it's, uh, you know, the best of everything, the best of everything. So whether it's, uh, um, and it's all very much uh, geared to the high net worth and the ultra high net worth audience that really 
reads and 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 uses the Tatler website, reads Tatler and uses the website. And so it's whether, you know, whether it's a, uh, a I'm sorry to go back to the cosmetic surgeons, but they do loom very large in the lives of Tatler readers, whether it's a cosmetic surgeon or a dog groomer or a, um, a spa um, holiday or whatever it is, you know, our Tatler address book has the contacts and the recommendations and they're all vetted by Tatler. And it allows these people to really very finely tune the audience that they're going for. Um, and actually, interestingly, even more finely tuned than that, for example, across a couple of our disciplines, we offer an advisory service. So, you know, we've got in-house, we have residing the most amazing expertise, you know, whether it's our beauty director or our education editor, or um, I don't know, our spa, um, editor and what we've now done is we've actually made their expertise available uh, to our readers and website users should they want to book a consultation they can do that so that's even more narrowly targeted and uh, you know again advertisers it's, it's absolutely being you know lauded as the next big thing by advertisers they love it um, our education editor again you probably know that in the UK you know, schools is a very sort of fraught, very, at times very daunting prospect, you know, where to send your child to school and do you go private, do you go yes. public, do you go, you know, what, what school do you send them to? So we have this education editor who is literally, her phone is flying off the hook at the moment because, because um, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, people are unsure as to whether they're going to remain in London, are they going to move out to the country, you know, there's a huge exodus, that's actually one of the trends I should have referred to earlier, which is that people are leaving the cities and going to the country, but again, that plays out into, you know, where do you send your children to school? And this for the Tatler reader has sent them into a tailspin, absolute tailspin. So, you know, in New York, on our Tatler education. in New York, too, you know, we have an office in New York, London and L.A. And we're seeing the same trends in all in all the different offices where everyone's fleeing the urban core, uh, but they still want the best in education and the best in everything for their kids. And they're they're very torn because they don't want to sacrifice that because they've you know, potentially moved out to the Hamptons or wherever. Now they've got to figure all of that out. And um, I'm hearing, I don't know if you're hearing the same, but I'm hearing that a lot of people are not giving up on the cities. They're, they're really dedicated to coming back. And I think it's the same in London where they're fighting to bring back London as quickly as possible. And they don't want to, you know, just flee for good. Are, Are you hearing that? Yes, and I think um, part and parcel of that, certainly in London, is to make public transport better, more efficient, and you mm. know, make make the city easier to navigate. And um, you know, I think that's that's got to be a priority, and to to sort of really marginalise people with cars driving, you know, one mile into the centre of London. It shouldn't it shouldn't happen. And again, that plays into the sustainability question. I love the interconnectedness of our conversation, Suzanne. It's all kind of it's all one one big interconnected thread but um so I think yeah you're probably right there is definitely a a, a huge effort being made on the part of you know the London authorities to to get this city livable uh and you know it's undeniable that the the 
attraction of being in London, the attraction of being in New York is, is partly to do with being able to go out and enjoy it. And once mm. we can go out and enjoy it again, I'm sure everything will be much better. Yes, I think so too. And I love what you said about things are local. They were global, now they're local. I've also heard the term glocal, which sounds pretty okay. cheesy, but it, it, it is also another way of thinking of it because I, I think that people in marketing especially are after the target audience, which may have the same profile, but be anywhere in the world. So it's, yeah. it's the like-minded people that they're trying to reach and they could be the same profile in New York, London, Miami, Dubai, where, wherever, um, you know, but they have the same lifestyle. And so yeah. I think that this brings us full circle back to your role in all of this, which is really, um, you know, creating those common threads and, and setting those trends globally. I mean, Tatler and Vanity Fair are global publications. You are setting trends in many countries at the same time uh, as, as you work with your, your counterparts. And, um, you know, I think it's really amazing that, you know, people still wanna be in fashion, people still wanna know what the trends are and they're still gonna be looking to someone if it's not, you know, what's down the street and in, in, in a city or um, in the local shop, they're going to be reading more, they're going to be reading more online and they're going to be looking more towards tastemakers like you to say, what should I do? Should I be going back? Should I be staying on the beach and working from here? What's everyone else doing? So you have a really important role, no pressure, but you have a really important role in helping everyone figure out what they're supposed to do next. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think, I think it, is, it, it is definitely a world where there's so much content out there and content, you know, just indiscriminate content can become landfill. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what is this content? What, what, what is the point of it? But when you work on a publication such as the one that I'm lucky enough to, to be stewarding right now, I, I, I think it, it becomes very clear that, you know, the advice that we give and the, the recommendations that we give are very much, uh, you know, a very curated, very vetted, very intelligent and thoughtful advice. And, you know, I'm, I'm, as big a sucker as the next person. I, I like having my hand held. I like having recommendations. I scour the Sunday Times at the weekend just to see, you know, what the books are that I should be reading, you know, what Thank I should you. be watching. You know, that's what I do. So everyone likes to have a little bit of mentoring, a little bit of advice, but, mm. you know, the smart and the savvy ones will go to the quality sources. Mm. And, yes. you know, it's like you in what you do, you know, you want to be, you want to kind of set yourself up and you are setting yourself up as the authority in what you do. And you want your clients to, to, um, you know, come along with you for those reasons. And, you know, it's, 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 I think we, we do pride ourselves at Condé Nast in producing content that is not going to be landfill. Absolutely. Not landfill at all. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And, I didn't know if you had any other parting thoughts. We're just about at time, but it's just been incredible speaking with you, Kate. Do you have any thoughts to leave our listeners with? Oh my goodness, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just hope for everyone that that we all sort of manage to navigate the next few weeks and months effectively, and that um, 
if they haven't already done so, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. I think that's, I, I got it. I managed to get it early. All you can wish for everyone is, is just to be well and keep yourself uh, safe. Certainly. Well, be well, Kate. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you.